Welcome to episode five of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. My name is Arup Sen and I'm joined as ever by Simon Lovegrove. In this month's show, we'll be looking at ESG initiatives in Hong Kong with Italka Bogardi. Albert Weatherall gives us an extended fintech update with Hannah Meekin. And Maylene Blanco from our New York office gives us an update on enforcement actions in the US. But before we kick off, over to Simon for the big RT stories this month. Thanks, Arup. Great to be here again. In terms of recent developments since our last podcast, we've seen a number of interesting papers, particularly from the European supervisory authorities, on one of the biggest issues for 2021 and beyond, ESG. In particular, the ESAs have issued a joint statement concerning the application of the SFDR-related RTS on the content methodologies and presentation of sustainability-related disclosures. In their joint statement, the ESAs recommend that during the interim period from the 10th of March 2021, when the SFDR comes into force, until the RTS are finalised, member state authorities should refer market participants to the requirements set out in the draft RTS that was set out in the ESA's final report that appeared on the 4th of February this year. The draft RTS can be used as a reference, even though there is a possibility that they may differ from the final RTS that the Commission eventually adopts. The other major development is the publication of the Khalifa report, and I know Hannah and Albert will be discussing that later. In terms of looking forward on what's happening in March, it's worth noting that two heavyweight HM Treasury consultations are closing. 11th of March is the deadline for responses to the HM Treasury call for evidence on the Financial Services Overseas Framework. 21st of March is the closing date for responses to the HM Treasury consultation on the UK regulatory approach to stable coins and call for evidence on crypto assets. There's also the matter of the joint declaration that the UK and EU entered into when they signed the Free Trade Agreement, where they committed to establish a framework for regulatory cooperation in financial services by March 2021. We'll have more on that in our April podcast when the position becomes clearer. But over to you, Arup. Thanks, Simon. Well, let's kick off our show with our first section, which is Atelka Bogardi discussing ESG initiatives in Hong Kong. In this part of the podcast, I am joined by Etelke Bergardi, a partner in our Hong Kong office. Uh, Etelke, there has been a lot going on recently in the ESG space. Um, I wanted to start by picking up on what the Securities and Futures Commission has been doing. Um, in particular, the authority has finished um, a three-month consultation, setting up proposals to amend the Fund Manager Code of Conduct. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this consultation? Yes, absolutely. And thanks for having me on today. So Hong Kong as a jurisdiction has been increasingly and, and pleasingly active in the ESG arena with tremendous amount of activity on all fronts, be it the banking regulator, the securities regulator, the SOC, or indeed the main bourse. In relation to the fund management industry, and you know, note that Hong Kong is a huge distribution center, but also increasingly a management center, the uh, Securities and Futures Commission, the SFC, launched a three-month consultation on proposal to amend the Fund Manager Code of Conduct. What this consultation does is essentially aimed at requiring fund managers who are licensed uh, in Hong Kong to take climate-related risks into consideration in their investment and risk management processes. 
What the amendments do is they seek to enhance the disclosure requirements uh, for fund managers also to combat greenwashing. So there are a number of suggested baseline requirements um, and the implementation of those should be subject to the principle of proportionality. What that means is that um, factors such as the size and complexity of a fund manager's business and the investment strategy is, will be taken into account. There will also be some divergence between larger funds and smaller funds. So fund managers with AUM of 4 billion Hong Kong or more will be required to take a more robust approach and make more detailed disclosure. So what the SFC is saying is that the proposed requirements will apply at an entity level to fund manager who manages a collective investment scheme. What this means that in the initial phase, these baseline requirements are not expected to be mandatory for fund managers who just manage discretionary accounts. So the four key elements around the proposals relate to governance, investment management, risk management, and disclosure. And the, the consultation paper sets out proposals for baselines, as well as enhanced uh, standards for large asset management, I just, as I just mentioned. So this consultation closed in January 2021. So we expect to hear uh, further from the SFC in the next three to six months on this. I see. So very much a case of watch, watch this space. Um, there were also amendments to Hong Kong Exchange and Clearing Limited's ESG reporting guide last year. Um, what were some of those key changes? The, yeah, that's correct. So the, the changes to the ESG reporting rules um, for Hong Kong listed issuers uh, came into effect uh, with effect from 1st July 2020 for the financial years commencing on or after this date. Um, some of the changes are more procedural and relate to the shortening of the timeframe for the publication of the ESG report, reports. And for example, a requirement to notify shareholders of its publication. In relation to the more kind of substantive mandatory disclosure requirements, the, the ESG report now has to include a statement relating to the board's consideration of ESG matters, including around issues such as this oversight um, that the board has exercised strategy and also more detail around progress against set targets. Other sort of technical, technical changes include um, requirements to disclose significant climate related issues impacting or that have impacted a Hong Kong listed issuer. Some of the environmental key performance indicators have been amended um, to require disclosure of relevant targets. And the so-called social KPIs have now been upgraded in relation to the disclosure obligation uh, to comply or explain standards. Um, these new rules are all aligned with the recommendations of the task force on climate related financial disclosures and essentially form part of the regulatory priorities announced by the SFC in their strategic framework for green finance that they published in, in 2018. Another quite interesting development in relation to the Hong Kong exchange is the launch of what's called STAGE, the Sustainable and Green Exchange at the tail end of 2020, which is essentially an investment product platform designed to support the growth of sustainable and green finance in Asia. Um, this platform is centered around an online product repository, which provides access to a database of sustainable investment products listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. 
And the issuers of investment uh, products that are to be included on stage must make additional voluntary disclosures on sustainable investment products, such as the use of proceeds reports and annual post-issuance reports. Thanks. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's quite a lot there, actually. Um, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority has also got in on the act, it would seem, <laughs> publishing a white paper last year on its supervisory expectations on banks' approaches to sustainable finance. But that isn't the end of the story. There's also been a circular and stress text testing exercise. Is that right? That, that's correct. And I think in the banking space, the green, green lending, green loans has been quite a busy area. And we at Norton Rose Fulbright are advising on a number of these at the moment. So in June 2020, the HKMA publishes white paper where they outlined their initial views on what, what its supervisory expectation is for, for licensed banks in Hong Kong in addressing climate related issues. They essentially distilled their expectations into a number of guiding principles across four categories, governing, covering governance, strategy, risk management, and disclosure. And of course, note the similarities here to the, to the work that's been ongoing on the fund manager code of conduct with the SFC, which we just discussed. Um, these guiding principles are intended to apply to all authorized institutions but having also regard to an AI size, the nature of their business, how complex its operations are and the stage of development in its capability in addressing climate related issues. This is all part of a three phased approach introduced by the HKMA in 2019, which is essentially aimed at encouraging the adoption of green and sustainable banking in Hong Kong as part of this, this large push that I described initially. So since this white paper was released, um, the HKMA also issued a circular describing the sort of the range of practices adopted by major banks, which is intended to facilitate others to design appropriate frameworks for managing climate risks. And they also launched a pilot climate change stress testing exercise, as you mentioned, for assessing the climate resilience of the banking sector as a whole. So an enormous amount going on in, in all sectors of financial services in Hong Kong. Very much seems the case. Uh, thank you so much, Atalka. There's uh, certainly a lot there for our audience to uh, consider. Um, we uh, thank you so much for all, all, all your time and uh, we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Welcome everybody to the Regulation Tomorrow podcast. I'm Albert Weatherill. Um, today on this segment of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about some recent developments in the fintech landscape from a regulatory perspective. In particular, we're going to talk about the markets in crypto assets regulation, uh, HM Treasury's recent call for evidence on stable coins in a new regime for stable tokens. And I'm also lucky to be joined by Hannah Meekin, who is going to talk us through a little bit about some of the recommendations arising from the recent publication of the UK's Khalifa review into fintech. So welcome, Hannah. So um, to start with, um, I'm going to focus a little bit on Mika. So what is Mika? So Mika is a the first real effort um, on a pan-European basis to put a regulatory regime around crypto assets, their use cases, and also the services provided by persons in the market with respect to crypto assets. And in Mika at this stage is, is in draft form. I think it's going to be a number of years until we have 
real clarity on the exact um, provisions pr primarily because obviously we've got the review process but also there's grandfathering provisions and there's transitional provisions so it's not going to be uh, we're not going to have full clarity for a for a period of time as of yet but i think what's clear at this stage is there is a real you know focus on a pan-european basis to implement a regulatory regime with respect to crypto assets and, and and to make that as comprehensive as possible and also aligned with other common regulatory regimes such as you know, the prospectus um, directive uh, as well as uh, MIFID II. So it clearly borrows some of the themes and the purpose of elements from those legislation and tries to apply those to what is still you know, a new and developing industry. And so when we think about Mika, it, it's, it's really best to think about it in segments. It, it's, it's kind of multiple different regulatory regimes combined into one. And so one of the things we have in Mika is we have a regime on public issuance of um, of crypto assets and, and this really applies very broadly at the moment to any offer um, or issuance of of crypto assets um, and it puts a regime around how you go about doing that what content has to be in the white paper there are domicile and authorization requirements in certain instances there is a host of other kind of conduct requirements and information requirements that have to go in hand in hand with the issuance and really it's trying to bring that issuance of crypto assets you know, sort of into a mini sort of public offer regime in the same way that would apply to the issuance of more traditional securities. The exact scope of that regime remains to be seen because as I say, the way issuance is defined really relates to the offer of tokens. So what we're not quite sure about yet is whether this is purely primary issuance or whether others in the industry who may offer crypto assets, so for example, market makers or dealers who might make themselves available to deal in crypto assets could be deemed to be offering crypto assets and therefore be in scope of these provisions. Uh, that remains to be seen and clearly we'll have to see how that um, works through the legislative process. Other areas where we have is we have a broad regime for crypto asset service providers. So thinking about how um, persons providing services like custody, like dealing, um, other services that traditionally would be performed in financial market infrastructures and in financial markets, but with respect specifically to crypto assets and how exactly that regime works. Now, this is where I say you have the most analogy to MIFID II, because you do have things like conduct regime, you have an authorization regime, governance requirements, you know, operational resilience requirements, a variety of other, you know, more traditional financial services authorization type obligations that would attach. And I think that would represent a quite a significant step change in the industry. Some jurisdictions at the moment have chosen to regulate crypto assets. And so, you know, members in their markets who are providing these types of services have already seen you know some extension of the regulatory regime to them but often that is an extension of existing regimes such as you know, a local implementation of MIFID for example or banking laws but you know this would represent a whole new regime and an authorization regime solely applicable to these persons providing services in crypto assets so that is a really key element of the of the, of, the of the regulation. Other elements involve uh, provisions related to asset reference tokens. So in effect, these are you know, forms of stable coins that are underlied by certain types of assets. And, and, and that again, pro provides a regime around the issuance of those. It, it provides a regime around what to do with the reserve of assets that underlies that uh, particular asset reference token, how firms are meant to interact and deal with that, what publication requirements there might be for offers and issuances, how to deal with systemic asset reference tokens. So where you have an asset reference token that is so widely adopted that it actually can create systemic risk. 
there's additional provisions that sit on top of that regime to deal with that. So with the asset reference tokens regime, it's clear that we're moving towards um, increased regulation in the context of, of, of broader arrays of crypto assets, which is a response from the regulators to how we're seeing use cases develop for these asset classes, particularly because many of the asset reference tokens, I think, generally can lend themselves more towards, you know, payment mechanics and, and utilization in payment transactions, which I think is why we've got a slightly different focus um, under Miko in the context of asset reference tokens than we perhaps do to other forms of crypto assets. And, and when we think about you know, stable tokens, asset reference tokens, it leads us in quite nicely to a to recent initiative proposed by uh, HM Treasury, which in effect is a consultation of two parts. One is of thinking and, and calling for evidence about use cases for stable coins and understanding their role in the financial markets. But other elements of that is, is indicating towards implementing a regime that would be applicable to a new category of tokens, stable tokens. So at the moment, the UK's crypto assets guidance issued by the FCA effectively confirms there are three different types of tokens. You have unregulated tokens. That's typically what we would call exchange tokens, like Bitcoin, Ether, um, Litecoin, etc. And then we also have utility tokens, you know, those tokens you use in a particular framework because it gives you reward points or it gives you early access. Then we have e-money tokens. They are forms of crypto assets that meet the definition of e-money under our electronic money regulations 2011 and then we have security tokens security tokens are as the name suggests those tokens that share characteristics of securities under our under the financial services and markets act uh, and that is therefore you know well and truly in the regulatory perimeter in the context of, of uk law so stable tokens are effectively a new type of token and, and, and under the under hmt's approach this would bring um, those types of tokens which are backed by, you know, a single fit currency or a basket of fit currency or possibly an asset class like a commodity into scope as a stable token. And what that means is there's an additional regime, what HMT are proposing to create around stable tokens such relating to their issuance and also possibly to a variety of different people who perform, uh, perform uh, services in relation to them, such as, you know, stabilization of value, holding of reserve assets, you know, dealing in those uh, assets custodying them so uh, it's the first step and that's what the, the FCAC and HM Treasury see I should say in, in the paper is that the first step is thinking about those stable tokens that you know can be used to facilitate payment transactions and bringing those in scope with a view to you know I think as is implied gradually and incrementally expanding the scope of the perimeter to make sure that we're capturing more stable coins and the, the, the premise of that is that you know there is perceived harm in the context of stable coins if they are not appropriately regulated, particularly if they can be used far more broadly and adopted, you know, and underpinning lots of different types of payment transactions. And again, like with Mika, HMT is also proposing that there is a kind of systemic regime to really capture those bigger ticket stable coins that, you know, it, it maybe aren't there yet, but in the future could become significant um, methods by which people transact in the UK economy, both in kind of retail and wholesale market. So I think the mood music generally from the context of the, the, the call for evidence is that, you know, the FCA and HMT are looking at ways in which the regulatory perimeter needs to adapt in the context of um, in the context of new innovations in the crypto assets markets. And it seems as if there is a, at the moment the UK is hinting towards whilst acknowledging that they'll need to slightly adapt the regime, they're looking at as far as possible to utilize our existing regime and, and expanding it and changing it to fit the asset class rather than, for example, the approach in Mika, where there is a kind of broad brush, brand new regulatory focused approach on crypto assets in and of itself.
itself. So I think that's a slight divergence between the UK and, and the EU. Um, so so that, that's effectively where we're at. Just I mean, there's obviously lots been happening in the fintech space of late, but they're just a couple of the key areas in the crypto asset space where we've seen lots of engagement from clients and lots of interest. So moving on to another area, I'm going to bring Hannah in now, who um, is going to talk a little bit about um, the Khalifa review, which was recently published. So, so Hannah, can you give us a brief overview of you know what what is the Khalifa review and and, and you know what's the origins of, of that review? Hi Albert, thanks for that. Um, so the Khalifa review is really a recognition by the government that fintech is a technological revolution that's changing the way we do finance. And if the UK wants to retain its position as a global leader in financial services, then we want to be leading this technological revolution. So they asked Ron Khalifa OBE to undertake a review into how the UK can maintain its position as the best place in the world to start and grow a fintech business. And the review is really a strategy and a delivery model for us to provide leadership in fintech going forward. And, and I know the review covers you know, lots of different areas. So if you, can you just run us through very briefly what the kind of core you know, pillars of the review were? And then I know one is focused more on policy and regulation. So perhaps you could talk us through in a bit more detail what uh, Khalifa's recommendations are in the context of that particular policy and regulation pillar. Yeah, that's right. So the review is organised into five work streams, one of which is policy and regulation. The others are skills, investment, international and national connectivity. Um, so, so the report is not just about regulation, but the government recognises that regulation is important because although the UK has led the way globally in its policy and regulatory approach to fintech, as businesses and technology and solutions scale, we want to make sure that our approach continues to protect consumers and creates an environment that encourages growth and competition. In essence, the products that the UK is making in the fintech space only really work if the consumers trust them enough to use them. So in terms of uh, recommendations, there are a number of recommendations under each of those five work streams and policy and regulation probably has more than its fair share. Um, they're grouped around kind of three uh, core recommendations in that policy and regulation space. Um, so just to kind of focus on those. The first one is to deliver a digital finance package that creates a new regulatory framework for emerging technology. So this will involve prioritizing new areas for growth and cross industry challenges such as financial inclusion and adopting specific policy initiatives that will enhance the fintech environment, in particular in relation to digital ID and data standards. But so being a package, there are a number of important aspects, um, too many to mention really in this podcast. I'll just pick out a few of the key ones. So the report mentions that the introduction of a central bank digital currency could help support the adoption of new technologies in financial services, um, but also emphasizes the need to have a clear focus and outcome when starting such an ambitious project. And that different considerations arise, whether you're talking about a wholesale or a retail central bank digital currency. So I don't think we should necessarily take this as an indication that this, this is actually going to happen, but it's certainly interesting that this is mentioned in the report. There's also a call to modernise certain areas of UK law to allow financial market infrastructures such as exchanges and central counterparties to process digital instruments and to introduce a new UK regime for the regulation of crypto assets, 
on the basis that the UK has the potential to be a leading global centre for issuance, clearing, settlement, trading and exchange of crypto assets. So the report says that the UK should aim for something that is at least as ambitious as the EU's markets in crypto assets regulation uh, or proposal for that regulation, which you've just been talking about, Albert. Um, but the UK would want to be more innovation driven and make it more flexible so that it can deal with future challenges. And it mentions decentralized finance or DeFi and the potential future regulation of that specifically. The report also stresses that the UK needs to act quickly in this area. The report also interestingly recognizes the role of fintech in supporting ESG or environmental social and governance uh, initiatives, not least in the use of technology to obtain and process substantial amounts of data efficiently. And the second big recommendation that I think it's worth mentioning is the implementation of a scale box. This would support firms that are focusing on scaling their innovative technology. So it would include enhancing the existing regulatory sandbox, which has been a, a global leader, making permanent the digital sandbox pilot, and then introducing measures to support partnering between incumbents and fintech and regtech firms, and providing additional support for regulated firms that are in the growth phase. So there are some interesting suggestions as to how the regulators might encourage such partnering and be more proactive in promoting ongoing dialogue with individual firms on how their organizational arrangements need to evolve as their businesses grow. And then the third key recommendation just briefly is to secure fintech's position as an integral part of UK trade policy and to continue to establish fintech bridges with other countries. So really making sure that the UK um, maintains its uh, position within the kind of wider global ecosystem. So, I mean, the takeaway from that is there's a lot of big ideas there. Um, and so I guess the question, you know, what, what, what's going to happen next? You know, what, what do we do? What are the next steps in, you know, how, now the recommendations have been made? Who, whose responsibility is it to kind of go about implementing these if they so wish to? And what do we think about, you know, who might need to be involved in, in that given the light of recommendations made? That is a very good question. So the recommendations are aimed at the government, but they would require a number of public sector bodies, regulators, as well as industry bodies and the private tech sector to take action in order to achieve them. There are very few next steps or timelines specified, although I assume we will see the policymakers and regulators responding quite soon. In the meantime, in the meantime I think it's up to all of us to get ready and get started where we can. Great. Thank you, Hannah. Um, so that's about it from us on the fintech side. We'll be back hopefully on future regulation tomorrow podcast to give you uh, new updates in the constantly evolving uh, world of fintech. Um, but thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you again soon. I'm joined today by Mailing Blanco, a partner in our New York office who specializes in white collar defense, government investigations, and commercial litigation matters, focusing in particular on Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and corporate fraud. Hi, Mailing. Hi, Simon. How are you? I'm very well. Today, I just want to focus with you on the US Department of Justice, the DOJ. Starting off, can you give us a bit of an overview on what the DOJ has been doing recently in terms of corruption-related enforcement action against financial institutions? 
Sure, Simon, I'd love to do that. So um, I think everyone was a little um, sort of unsure whether where the old administration was going to go in terms of um, prosecutions of corruption. And I think we saw that even though there was a little bit of a slowdown towards the beginning, it really quite picked up. And we actually ended um, the administration with some quite large um, enforcement actions against fi uh, financial institutions with regards to corruption. And those corruption matters um, continue to be focused around the same sort of traditional third party agents and their use. But as well, we also saw over the last couple of years, actions being brought pertaining to the use of internships and other sort of um, very valuable uh, uh, employments with the financial institutions as a way to curry favor for business opportunities abroad. And, and quite a bit of the uh, activity was in the region of Asia. So, um, you know, quite interesting that the old administration continued sort of, uh, even though that sl slowed down in the beginning, really kind of continued on with the enforcement actions. And since the DOJS had a very, very busy year, where do you see things headed in the next year or so? Sure, Simon, that's a great question. I think if the, the oil cases out of Latin America uh, taught us any, anything, as well as if we look at the Swiss bank programs, I think they show that once the Department of Justice um, has sort of invested a large amount of energy and resources in learning an industry and how it works, we're likely to see more prosecutions um, and enforcement actions stemming from similar conduct in the industry. We also shouldn't forget the prosecutions of individuals, such as officers and directors. Um, there is a Department of Justice memorandum where um, companies are basically encouraged um, to identify the individuals who are responsible for the misconduct. And so we are likely to see additional prosecutions of uh, directors and officers, and those prosecutions don't happen concurrently, they usually lag behind or proceed prosecutions of the, of the enforcement actions uh, of the entities. That's really interesting, Mei Ling. Um, what advice do you have for financial institutions listening into this podcast? What should they be doing now in light of this precedent? So absolutely, Simon. So maybe it seems a little obvious, but financial institutions should learn from the mistakes of their peers. They should consider whether their policies and procedures are sufficient to avoid these compliance blunders. Not only does this make good common sense, but there's actually a Department of Justice. Uh, uh, the, the Department of Justice has recently updated their evaluation of the corporate compliance programs this past summer, and they essentially said that very explicitly. The updates um, place a great emphasis on having data-driven programs that mine operational data to anticipate risk. One of the notable updates was pertaining to lessons learned, which has uh, prosecutors considering the organization's compliance program to consider whether the company has processes for tracking and incorporating into a specific to its periodic risk assessment assessments, lessons learned from the company's own prior issues or from those of others operating in a similar industry. So it makes good sense for financial institutions to consider whether their compliance programs currently are meeting this new updated standard. Thanks, Maylene. That's really interesting. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for having me, Simon.
Always great to speak to you. Take care. Bye-bye. that brings episode five to a close thanks to all of our speakers and thanks to you for tuning in we'll be back next month uh, with more regulatory news in the april episode but before then uh, do look out for regulation tomorrow plus our new spin-off podcast uh, if you want more details about that uh, log on to regulation we'll catch you next time <laughs>